But, you know, with that, Oscar, I, I want to turn it over to you because uh, obviously we're talking about self-harm and suicide and we want to probe deeper into it. But uh, this is something that uh, you experienced in your own family with someone who was very dear to you. Yeah. Let me just start by adding to what you guys just said, because I just said this in a sermon recently, which I don't think I made this up. I think I heard this from somebody, but it's because something like this is that the promise of the gospel isn't that you get a good life. The promise of the gospel is that you get Jesus who will help you through life. If you've listened to even a few of our podcasts, you know that we usually start off quite light, but today we're dealing with a very serious subject, and so we're going to be uncharacteristically sober. Uh, We're going to be exploring the question, what's behind self-harm and suicide? And it really, really, really is our sincere hope that uh, we can give some helpful answers today and also give some hope, maybe to some of you who are listening and who are struggling with that. And on that note, uh, we got this very encouraging comment on our podcast, Apple Platform, recently. The subject said, Biblical Counseling Confirmation. July 1st, I signed up for Biblical Counseling course to become a counselor. Recently had second thoughts, but I reminded myself I'm committed to doing it. Then July 12th, this episode airs. Thank you so much for confronting me about going through with taking the course. Also, thank you, Mark, for those lists of resources to check out and those great counseling principles you laid out. And that was from Jessica Denham. Jessica, thank you so much for that. And this really ties into what we're talking about today because I think the church needs to be available to counsel God's people uh, through these tragic and difficult times. And what she's referring to is biblicalcounseling.com, which is who we push people towards if they need some counsel. There's some 1,600 free counselors available online. If you are going through some serious issue where you just go, you know what, I need some outside input, somebody to raise up my uh, weary arms as I go through this difficult time, and it's available through FaceTime, through Zoom, through phone calls and things of that nature, and it is biblical counseling uh, that you'll receive. Wonderful, free, 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 free service. And, you know, let me, let me just start off by, by saying, I think sometimes people can listen to us here on the podcast, they can hear us again being light, joking, and even just talking about our lives in general, and people can get this kind of sense like we're just these, you know, happy, clappy chappies, and we haven't really been through some difficult things. And I think it's important for us to kind of lay a foundation, because oftentimes what leads to self-harm and suicide are difficult, painful circumstances, you know, when we're gutted and when we feel devastated and we're going through pain and we feel hopeless and lonely and, and so on and so forth. And so all of us here today have been through some difficult things. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to start off with Ray sharing one of the most salient, painful seasons of his life and difficulties he's gone through. And then we'll share you and me, Mark. And I'd like to then let Oscar finish because Oscar has gone through something extremely painful that ties into what we're talking about today. So Ray, what's been one of the most difficult, painful, devastating things you've been through in life? Which one would you like? (laughs) All of them (laughs) combined. Um, The the hernia. uh, No, that wasn't bad. It was the the kidney stones. That was pretty terrible where I was lying on the floor asking God to kill me because it was so painful. Not really kill me, but just take me home. I just didn't want this anymore. That was horrible. Never had thoughts of suicide. Never felt angry or bitter at God, but just I can understand how non-Christians would want to take their lives under such dark circumstances. Same with panic attacks. A member of our staff is going through panic attacks at the moment, just devastating him. Horrific. I can see where 
in the world, you'd go to drugs to try and blot it out, go to alcohol to try and blot it out, or even contemplate suicide. And I've been amazed at how many people have said, yes, I get suicidal thoughts when I ask them. Just absolutely amazed. It's very, very common. My panic attacks left me for a year with not being able to have a meal with my family. It was too traumatic. Couldn't even lead family devotions, which horrified me. It was just, I stumbled through it for a year. Took five years to recover from them, but I have. Uh, The memory of them has left me saying it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And the closest I've ever grown to God is during those times of affliction. They, They really do bring you to your knees and make you have zero desire for this world. Absolutely zero. Zero for vainglory and and all the things that the world embraces. You just don't want anything to do with anything that doesn't please God when you come out of those dark situations. And is that, Ray, what, what was called agoraphobia? Is that Agor- agoraphobia. Agoraphobia? Yeah. It's fear of the open spaces. And I had to go and keep with an itinerant ministry. And when you have a panic attack, you want to avoid the place you had the attack because it brings back that feeling of flight or fight. But Ray, th- this was, it's easy sometimes, I think, when we touch on something like this, and we, you've talked about it a little bit before on, on some programs, but we can gloss over it. Yeah, Ray went through this. But th- this was like sh- foundation shaking in terms of, of how you felt. Oh, and, yes. Right? I, I remember the feeling. I think, oh, I need to lie down on the couch and share this with you. But when I was a little child, I used to have nightmares. And I'd end up in my parents' bedroom and they would have to throw water on me to get me out of it. You know, like you throw a glass of water in someone's face. Something my parents had to do. When I went to my first panic attack, I had that reoccurring nightmare Mm. as a 20 or 30, whatever, 38-year-old or something like that. It was just a nightmare when I was awake. And it left me with... uh, the same feeling any human being would get. Now, when I'm talking about a lion attacking you, I'm not talking about it stalking you. I'm talking about a ferocious lion with its mouth open making that roar that's like a like thunder wow. running at you. That wow. was the feeling you get with a, a full panic attack, dripping with sweat, heart palpitations. And I'd get those lying in bed in the morning for no reason. That was what drove me crazy. I thought, am I losing my mind? And I remember hearing James Dobson once on his uh, focus on the family, talking about this, just touched on it, and it gave me such comfort to know that I wasn't going insane, that it was agoraphobia, a panic attack, fear of the open spaces, and it was a fight-or-flight experience where all the adrenaline and, and is, is rushing at you um, to try and strengthen, and it just overwhelms you. So there are certain things you can do with a panic attack, and I, I've written a book about it, but one of them is sounds dumb, but breathing deeply. You just have to stop during the attack, realize your oxygen is being drained from your uh, mind and that's what's causing the heart to race. And if you can get oxygen in there really quick with deep, deep breathing through your nose and hold it and then as deep as you can again and again, that'll make you stop, bring more oxygen to you, won't feel the feeling of panic and feeling as though you're having a heart attack. But I can see how people going through something like that and not having God to lean on would just a suicide would be, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll take that. And Ray, five how, years, too. That's a lot. Sorry, how old were you during that five-year period? Do you remember? Boy, it was, uh, I was probably in my early 40s, 38, 40 or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe not, because I know I met you when you were 46. You This happened in New Zealand, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably 30s, I would think. Yeah. 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 Before World War One. Um, No jokes during this Um, One thing that really ministered me Was uh, Keith Green's music I would uh, turn on 
Uh, some of the songs like my, my eyes are uh, dry, my heart is cold, my prayers, are, you know, it was just beautiful words. And the parable of the prodigal son that he sung just became my favorite. I just listen to that and weep. When I listened to it, it was so moving, the love of the father. And so it was a bittersweet time. Bitter because of it brought me to absolute nothing, but sweet because it brought me to absolute nothing. Wow. It's amazing, you know, how the Lord can use things like that music. I mean, I think of uh, David, you know, when Saul would have that distressing spirit, he would play the harp and that would soothe him, you know, and, but with truth combined with that. Mark, what about you? love to give things away. We love to give things away. And that's why we will do that every single day here on the Living Waters podcast. That's right, friends. We're giving away goodies for those of you who go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. We are giving 10, believe it or not, 10 different people each week goodies from Living Waters, a $100 value for each box. You'll get tracts and books and a podcast mug and all kinds of good things. So make sure to participate at livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. And make sure to listen to the very end of the podcast where you will hear the announcement of the winners every week. Listen, I, I, th- I think that we all have things that we can say. Uh, let me, let me, challenge this from a different angle. As I look back, I go back probably 23, 24 years ago where I found myself in the shower, fully clothed, down in a fetal position, literally sucking my thumb, thinking, how did I get to this place? Why am I going through what I'm going through? I think many people kind of consider the thought, just the idea of suicide. Maybe they consider it seriously, maybe they, maybe they don't. But I was at one point, kind of Googling accidental suicide, how to make it look like it was an accident. You know, go, go climbing and accidentally, you know, fall off a mountain because there, there's no shame in, in accidentally dying, yeah. you know. And I think we as Christians, we lose sight of the point and purpose of the trials and the tribulations and things that we go through, that God is ultimately going to do what he needs to do to bring the ultimate glory to his name and down that road that's less traveled that people don't typically sign up for, there's beauty that is found. I I shared with my wife last week, I said, had I known the things that I would go through in life, I would not have married you 23 years ago. Had I known what I was going to go through just in life, just the things we go through, I would not have married you. I would not have married anybody. And now in hindsight, in looking back at the, at, with the maturity and the level that I'm at, though I never would have signed it back then, there's no way I would have escaped from her at that point. I would have embraced her all the more. I would have embraced marriage and the idea and the concept of the trials and the tribulation. Nobody signs up for a trial, but knowing what that trial produced inside of me, the the things that I went through is absolutely amazing. We have a friend that uh, went through cancer and she says, I do not wish cancer upon anyone, but the beautiful benefits of cancer, I wish upon all of the children of God. Yeah. 
unless we go through the cancer, we, we won't ever experience it. And I think R. Kent Hughes answered the question really well as to why he wrote 22 commentaries, why he knew the word as well as he did. And this kind of applies to me, though I've never written a commentary. He said, the word of God became to me my ultimate sanity in a photoshopped world. Because the modern day gospel and the message that we hear today is that Christ will improve this life here and now. But in reality, when you become a Christian, you're signing up for trials, tribulation, persecution, temptation, and suffering. But your name's written in heaven. So I would not know the word as well as I do right now had it not been for the trials, the difficulties, and the stuff. Because I ran to God's word on my knees. I embraced Christ. And there was a prayer that I prayed, a very simple prayer that I prayed back in January 1994. And it was, God, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much I kick and scream, never let me be out of your will. You do whatever you need to do to glorify yourself in me. Hmm. I had no idea what I was praying for. <laughs> Sounds like a refiner's fire. It, it really was. But listen, it was, a, it was a beautiful thing that happened, that we all really will and must go through times of tribulation like that in order for God to glorify himself. And then finally, here's just a verse. In Romans 5, verse 3, it says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So there's a point and a purpose for the things that we go through. And may God help us to go through those things well. Yeah, and you know, I, I often have said that if we were in charge of designing our own trials, we would never grow as much as we end up growing because we would never be that hard on ourselves. <laughs> you know, God always knows exactly what we need to make us into who he wants to make us into, you know? And in connection with that, my, my like kind of monumental pain as a Christian happened many, many years ago, about 20 years ago or so. It was at the height of my ministry. God was using me opening doors. I was preaching in, in mega churches and, and places I shouldn't have been in really. And all of a sudden this devastation of soul hit me. I think I've talked about it here on the program before. Many have called it the dark night of the soul. And for a seven, eight month period, I was absolutely devastated. You know, I always felt a real authority and power and strength and clarity when I was in the pulpit. During that season, it was like God was, you know, a universe away from me. I sensed no strength, no power. Tozer said, in the place of everything that makes your life zestful, you find nothing but heaps of ashes. Oswald Chambers said when he went through it for like four years, he said the only thing that kept him out of an asylum was pretty much God's grace and the support of friends and loved ones. And there was just this internal devastation. I couldn't explain it. Couldn't look people in the eye. I would, I, you know, there were times I would preach and I would run and like weep in a room afterwards. One time I wanted to run out in the wilderness and howl because it was so devastating. The word lost its luster for me. God's presence was difficult to enter into. A prayer was hard. But I'll tell you, when God brought me out of that, I often look back and say, I wouldn't have wished the pain on my worst enemy, but I would wish the results on everyone because uh, God refined me through it. And from there, more doors opened. And obviously with what's gone on with living waters and all that, it's like God needed to break me, you know, through that season. But it was more painful than when I lost my mom. Mm. And that was the most painful thing, you know, before that. But you can only imagine, I, I, I really did want to just go to heaven and be with the Lord because it was so difficult. So... Yeah, and so I, I think with that... Yeah, so if you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian too. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to our club. 
But you know, with that, Oscar, I, I want to turn it over to you because uh, obviously we're talking about self-harm and suicide and we want to probe deeper into it. But uh, this is something that uh, you experienced in your own family with someone who was very dear to you. Yeah. Let me just start by adding to what you guys just said, because I just said this in a sermon recently, which I don't think I made this up. I think I heard this from somebody, but it's goes something like this, is that the promise of the gospel isn't that you get a good life. The promise of the gospel is that you get Jesus who will help you through life. And I think that's important to recognize. Yeah. So I think I've talked about it before. I have triplet sisters. So I was an only child until I was 13 years old. And then my mom got pregnant with triplets and my sisters were like the closest thing in the world to me. I mean, I loved these girls as a kid. You know, sometimes older siblings, they like get envious of the attention that's paid to younger kids or they get frustrated with the diapers they need to change. I was never that guy. I loved and adored my sisters. I was just mentioning this joke the other day, talking about how much attention they got. For the longest time, my mom's first like social media Instagram handle was mother of three. (laughs) <laughs> she has four kids. <laughs> oh, that's she just like bounced me off. But it never, those kind of things never bothered me because I loved my girls. When they were seniors in high school, I get a phone call from my mom and, and uh, one of my sisters, Jay, had attempted suicide. And so this was the beginning of us discovering that she was struggling with major bouts of depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation, which is something even more than just depression. She had been struggling with it since she was like 13 or 14 years, but she was struggling with it in secret. Small attempts here and there, cutting, and all just nobody knew. Nobody knew this was happening. So she spent the majority of her teenage years struggling with this alone with no help whatsoever. But once we found out, we dove in, we did everything we, we could to help her. My, my wife and I prayed and pleaded. We spent our own time and money driving her around from one therapy you know, meeting to a doctor's meeting to, to group sessions all over the county. She spent a lot of time at our home on, on some of those nights where it was harder for her. I love all three of them immensely. And throughout those two or th- two years, we grew even closer to Jay. You know, she told me during that season of life that she wanted me to walk her down the aisle for her when she got married. Wow. My kids loved her dearly. Her last post on Instagram is heard my oldest daughter doing like bunny ears to each other. So she at 21, unfortunately we lost the fight and she uh, took her own life. And yeah, I mean, I'll never forget the day I was actually um, hopping into the shower, getting ready to come to work. And my mom called me and told me what had happened. And like the processing was just incredibly difficult. Didn't want to believe that it was true. So it was incredibly difficult. We spent two years just in the thick of learning everything we could about how to support somebody going through the, the, the thick of it. And I would say in regards to so, so before we get into like what it is and yeah. the practicality, I will say this is that something that I've learned through the gospel, two things that I've learned in that season of life. The first is that God draws near to you when you are at your weakest. Yeah. When you are thinking to yourself, like, I can't do this. This is too much for me. This is the end of me. I can't, I can't, I can't. What is the first of the Beatitudes? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. God is near to you in those moments. That is a prayer that Jesus himself knew. He was the God man who who sweat blood and who cried out to God, take this cup from me. And the scriptures say that very next moment that an angel came and strengthened him. And so God knows those pleads because he's pleaded that before himself. And he, in fact, died on the cross so that we would have hope. And then the second thing that I would say is for those, because the reality is that 45,000 people a year commit suicide in the U.S., 800,000 a year worldwide. It's an epidemic, which means there's a lot of people here listening right now that probably know somebody who's taken their own life. And I would just say to those individuals that on this side of heaven, suffering and hope, hope doesn't like get rid of suffering. Rather, they, they live together. They're two sides of the same coin. You have hope while you suffer, while you have sorrow, while you miss and long for your loved ones. But the hope that you have is that on the other side, that all tears will be wiped away, that all healing will be seen complete, that there is no more suffering and no more sorrow. That's the thing that, that pushes us towards the cross is the hope we have. Amen. To this point, right? When dealing with somebody who is going through something like what you've gone through, a terrible thing to ask like you, Oscar, would be, why haven't you moved on already? Hmm. Yeah. Instead, I heard somebody once say, instead of asking somebody, why haven't you moved on? How are you moving forward? That's good. And then it causes that introspective pause in one's life. And if, if the answer is not biblically based, as your response just was, then you need to bring in that biblical balance. You, that's how you are able to uh, mourn with those who mourn when it comes time to speak. Or otherwise, just be quiet and, and be there for the person. Don't be like Job's friends. Yeah. Don't expect people to move on because that was a very real situation that will be with them until they die themselves, but they need to be able to move forward and they are able to move forward with God's help. And I tell my kids all the time, I say, listen, this is a difficult situation that you're in, but with God's help, it's not a difficult, you can do it with God's help. So move forward. And that's where we must always be because we're always moving in some direction, right? By necessity, we're probably moving backwards because as Spurgeon said, life is like an icy slope. If you try to stay still, you won't, you're going to fall back. So we must, with every bit of energy we can, with every pick and every step, be able to climb up that mountain. But with Christ, it's look to Christ and be saved because he is the solution. I'm moving forward hand in hand with him. And it causes our roots to go deeper in heaven, not here on earth, because this is not our home. It really isn't. I think what helps with that is letting go of the outcome that you wanted and being okay with the, the plan. God's plan, right? that this is the way, this is God's sovereign plan, you know? And I don't mean that, like that could come off to somebody who's suffering as like, so, so God's plan was for my loved one to take their own life. In God's sovereignty, he works all things out yeah. for the good of those who love him. And so the suffering that is in this world is a outcome of sin, of the fall, 
the whole world groans in anticipation of the return of its king. And in the midst of all that, God is sovereignly working for your good. And that's exactly right. So when I, when I talked about with you guys, what, kind of what I went through without going into great detail, what got me out of that was I had a pastor friend, Richard Brennan. He came alongside me and just despairing of life. And he said, Mark, I just want to let you know that God knows. God knows what you're going through. And to your point, not just the fact that God is sovereign, he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, he answers to no one, doesn't care what we think about it. But when we think about, since God knows, when we know all the attributes and the character of God, and all things are harmonizing amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. That, wait a minute, God is so big. There's not one maverick molecule in the entire universe, as Sproul said, that he could have prevented, he could have stopped, but no, he is going to make this thing work together for my good and for his glory, Romans 8, 28. Yeah, and and Oscar, thank you so much for sharing that story about Jay, and it, it, it really touches us in that we remember Jay because you would bring her around the ministry when you were trying to help her during that time. She would come and she would help volunteer and serve. And so it, it just didn't feel real when you when you told us. It was like, what? We just saw her. And and it just, it broke our hearts. And, and, and I can, you know, connect with the pain that she was going through. And I was suicidal as a teenager. I, I, I've shared it before. I tried to commit suicide in front of my family. And for those of you listening, we, we will remind you at the end again, but we produced a movie called Exit that was all about suicide. And in there, I share my testimony. Ray did just an excellent job with, with putting that movie together. But Ray, that's something I think you've seen more and more as you've been out on the streets talking with people in terms of those that are suicidal. That's just become... A, a massive like thing now that absolutely you're... Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and that word may is a word of permission. Hmm. May he may devour you if you are serving him. And Jesus said you, to the Pharisees, "Your father is the devil, and his work should do." So the whole world is uh, in the lap of the wicked one, and when he whispers, they often listen. And there are so many that are listening, especially with going through a pandemic and the, the future and all the. The school shootings and the, it's just the, the world is not a nice place to live in. Yeah. And so a lot of people are thinking of suicide. Regarding Exit Movie, Mark, can you find it online? I couldn't find it. It's, yeah. it's not we had to change the name. Because we changed the name You Are Not, Alo- to you are not Alone because Oh, Exit. you're right. But it's only had 79,000 views, which breaks my heart because... But not when the original movie had... I can't remember. Only had 400,000, I think, and yeah. we just put it on private. But that still breaks my heart because if a cat barks, it gets 40 million views. Yeah, right. And that, it just so much frivolous stupidity on, on YouTube when we've got something to say it's yeah. this concrete about this issue. And yeah. The title of the video, if you go to our YouTube channel, Living Waters, it's called You Are Not Alone, Hope for Your Depression. It's 39 minutes long. It's so well produced. Yeah, Ray. really. really. I, I wish somehow that we can get that more exposure because it's more needed than ever in this time. So so let, let's probe this, guys. Before we, we really talk deeply about suicide, I want to talk about self-harm. Mm. And you mentioned with Jay that she, she you know, would, would do that as well. And so that's a big thing. And it, that's becoming a bigger trend. In fact, there was a, a TV series, I can't remember the name, that was made all about, you know, suicide. Oh, yeah. And it involved, you know, self-harm and, and those sorts of things. But, but this, there's a website called The Recovery Village that described self-harm as this. Self-harm involves a person damaging their body by cutting, burning, scratching, or practicing any other 
behavior that results in pain or injury. Different motivators can encourage people towards self-harm, such as feeling overwhelmed or numb. And self-harm is actually a big thing. The statistics say that about 17% of all people will self-harm during their lifetime. And this is on an analysis across 40 different countries. Hmm. The average age of the first incident of self-harm is usually around 13. I think you mentioned that's around when your sister started doing that. 45% of people use cutting as their method of self-injury. So why would it be at 13? I have a, an inkling. Why do you think, Easy? Why would that age Probably be? Probably the teenage years, your body changing, uh, insecurities developing. Uh, mm-hmm. What were you thinking? I was thinking it's, the, it's that's the age that other people's opinions mean so much to you. Yeah, you become more self, yeah, self-conscious. Absolutely, and it's just not about kicking a football. It's uh, There's girls out there that I'm not liked, I'm ugly, I'm too short, too tall, and my friends reject me, I don't like them, yeah. and they don't like me, and that's an age of vulnerability. And when you're, you're so subject to peer pressure. Yeah. That has a lot to do with it. Uh, what's interesting is that um, self-harm and depression, while it's both in male and female, it's predominantly in those teenage years, it's exponentially higher with girls. Uh, it's partic- specifically self-harm. And one of the things that, I can't remember who the sociologist pointed out, but that is also the age where girls become aware of sexuality. Mm. And what they end up doing is they start creating body image comparisons. Like right. pornography does a lot of harm towards men in their brains. But another thing that went, that girls, young girls will start seeing pornographic images. I mean, full pornographic images as in pornography websites, but also pornographic images on television. And it creates a low sense of self-worth if they perceive that they are supposed to look and act a certain way that they don't look or act. And so that, that pressure yeah. starts to mount on itself for young girls. Right. And, you know, a lot of times rejection you know, that sense of loneliness, bullying, yeah. all of those things, they, they contribute to it, you know, in a big way. And, and it's like some form of like release of, of, you know, inflicting yourself with that pain. I just got to stop here. Why would inflicting yourself, yourself be a release of pain? It brings pain. It, yeah, it's, it's some form of psychological. It's, it's psychological. So what they would say is that it is painful, but in some ways they deserve it. And in some ways, like experiencing the pain and self-harm is a way of like a self, like what Luther used to do with the self-lashings. I deserve this. So you've got Legion who, yeah. who was continuing yeah, cutting believing himself. a lie. Well, you think of, yeah, exactly. I mean, in Mark 5, uh, the man of the tombs, uh, and it, it says in Mark 5, verse 5, it says, always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. And, you know, whether someone is demon possessed or not, there's still that sense of demonic oppression and demonic influence. And I think, you know, it is a demonic element of someone marring the, the, the temple of God or, or the, you know, the, the, the vessel that bears upon it, the image of God. Yeah. You know, I think the, a good way of saying it is they, they come to believe a lie that they are not worth much. So not loved. where does piercings come in? You see these sweet young girls hit 13, 14, shave one side of their head, put rings through the nose, tattoos, and these things that are just so, no better word for it, ugly and so unfeminine. Is that all tied in with the self-loathing and cutting? Some of it could possibly be. I mean, when you have ma- massive body modifications where they're doing, you know, crazy things to their bodies, 
yeah, I think all of it kind of ties in and it could be related for sure. Not always, but I think in some cases it could be. But then we, we enter suicide. So there's a, the issue of self-harm, but then suicide. And Oscar, you mentioned earlier, 45 million Americans die by suicide every year. 45,000. I'm sorry, I say million, 45,000. But you think 45,000, that's a stadium full of people taking their own lives. And it's much more than that because a lot of suicides are hidden. Yeah, 800,000 worldwide. That's right. 125 Americans die by suicide uh, approximately every day. You know. So what uh, would you say to someone who's about to kill themselves? I've often thought about this. There I am up on a high rise chatting with someone, having a cup of coffee, and I see someone stand out on a window ledge. What would you say to them? I mean, that freaks me out that my, my words, positive or negative, could say whether someone lives or dies. Well, I remember in the exit movie, one of the reasons they took it down is because you actually showed people on bridges, uh, some about to jump, others that were saved and rescued by people. And I think that this is the moment where human empathy and compassion and love need to come to the forefront. You know, because look, there's a lot to be said on the subject and and there's a lot that in my research, I found Christian leaders touching on that is important to note in terms of what's behind suicide and ultimately what can it mean for a lot. It is, it's a complex issue, Mm -hmm. but there are cases where it is a selfish kind of a thing. You know, you, you, you know, you just want to be out of that pain, but you're not thinking about the repercussions and the pain that's going to inflict on others. And, and what that says about your perspective on God and his sovereignty, like we've touched on already. So there's a lot there, but there's a time and a place to talk about that, you know, and sometimes you can, I have spoken with people who are suicidal. I would relate to them and say, look, I was there, I was suicidal. And in, in essence, really you're, you are in a sense committing self-murder because you don't own your body. It's not yours. Your life is not your own. It's God's. And there is an element of, of selfishness that's involved and you need to understand what's going on here. Cause sometimes we do focus so much on the pain of that person, what they're going through that we do miss like what's really happening there and what they're doing, you know, and it's a sensitive issue. But when you're dealing with the person, I think, man, you have to tread lightly you have to show compassion. Oscar, you dealt with it a lot. So yeah, there is. So it. practically speaking, I kind of want to jump off of what Ray just brought up because practically speaking uh, and, and more realistically, like what would somebody do if, if you think that, that somebody might be suicidal or they mention that, that they've been depressed and you want to know like, how do I figure out where they're at in this? There's some really good questions to ask that most people think that you shouldn't ask, but you actually should. So first, the signs are people that are starting to isolate from, from others, not return phone calls, text messages, not want to go out in public spaces, things of that nature. But let's say you're talking with somebody and you get the sense that they've had some suicidal thoughts or that they're experiencing with extreme bouts of depression. A really important question to ask is, have you made a plan or how would you do it? That might sound real, like why would I want them to think about how they would do it? But that's actually a really important gauge as to know how serious to take their depression or suicidal thoughts. They say that if someone says, no, I don't know how I would do it. I just think I don't want to live anymore. 
definitely still tread lightly, but maybe like the, and the urgency signals should be high. But if someone says, I have made a plan, I have a gun, I have this, I would do that. That is like red light. Mm. That is very important because the next steps that you ought to do in that kind of a conversation, maybe towards the end of the conversation, you should circle back with it. But afterwards, you got to come back and go, okay, let's make a plan so that that plan is not possible. So just as an example, if there's a gun in the house, let's remove that weapon. So gun is number one. For men, a gun, gun is number one. If someone says, oh, you know, my mom has these pills, I would take them. Okay, let's go ahead and put those in a place where you don't have access to those. And surprisingly, in those situations, when somebody confesses their plan, and you circle back and go, hey, let's, let's do something about that plan. They won't say no. Most of the time they'll say, yeah, let's do that. That's a good idea. Let's get rid of that plan. And so just very practically speaking, more than likely you'll probably be in that kind of scenario. It's okay to ask if they've made a plan. It's actually really valuable. And those are some important next steps to, to create a sense of safety for those people. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really good. This really shows the urgency of the gospel with our nation, that uh, Christians have got to step up to the plate and, and explain to unsaved people there are only two sorts of people in this world, those that build their house on rock and those who build a house on sand. And we're all going to come under the storms. And whether or not you crumble into suicide depends on what you do with the teachings of Jesus. Because I, I live in fear of suicide because I fear God. You know, that's, and, and also I know that all things are working together for good, no matter what, whether it be kidney stones or agoraphobia, God is working it out for my good. And I don't want to wreck that plan that he's got for me. It sounds simplistic to say the gospel is the answer, but it certainly is to uh, transform yeah, the heart. It is. And oh, you and, uh, sorry, I just finished that off me. I think major, one of the major reasons, and it's not, it's just a major reason, is there are so many people out there living lives of absolute futility. No purpose, told they're nothing but a, a, yep. a primate. There's no rhyme, no reason to life. Death isn't punishment from God. Sin isn't real. There's no right or wrong. Whatever you do doesn't really matter. They're the people we need to reach and say, hey, there are absolutes. And we have to be honest with the reality of what it is to live in a Western modernized life and how that is increasing depression and suicide. Because without a doubt, I'm sure we were going to make a plan for this, but without a doubt, suicide is multifaceted. Sometimes what helps is therapy, talking through things. Sometimes what helps is medication. Sometimes there's a physiological condition there that needs something to be done. And a lot of, and every time I would say it's also spiritual, there's some sort of lie that they've come to believe there's some sort of aspect of the gospel that is not not being seen or understood. And I would just say, to add to your point, a big part of sort of the culture is think about the narrative of expressive individualism, Mm. that you go out and create your own identity. You go be you. You do your thing. Every TV, we talked about this before, every TV show, movie, book, song these days seems to tell everybody that they are the most important things in the world and that they're the ones that have to go out and define themselves. What happens when that person decides I'm worthless? Because now you've told them, just look in your own heart. And what if their heart is telling them, what if their heart is the very thing that's driving them to feel worthless? See, we, we have this devalued sense of self. It's too much weight to tell kids to go out and define themselves. Yeah. 
The promise of the gospel is that you don't have to define yourself because you've been defined by a divine God who created you and you are defined not by what you are able to do, but by the God who loved you enough to die for you on the cross. I love it. Often you hear people say, I've been, I'm trying to find myself further to what you're saying. That's a, a common cliche, if I, that's the right word. I'm trying to find myself. I said to a guy the other day, what does that mean? And he didn't even know what it meant. Right. And that's because he's lost, doesn't know where he came from, what he's doing here, where he's going to. And I found myself when I came to Christ. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, free from the power of the grave, free to be an individual that God created you to be. So when you take God out of the equation for a nation, it's absolute a ship without a rudder. Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite sayings that I think encapsulates, Oscar, what you were just saying is, we are not human doings, we are human beings. And if you're constantly setting your value on the basis of what you do, boy, in one sense, it can make you extremely arrogant and self-righteous if, if you do a lot of great things in people's eyes. And in another sense, it can get you suicidal mm -hmm. because you're not measuring up and you're worthless. Mm -hmm. Rather than I'm a human being, I am made in God's image. And, you know, there's significance there. Somebody once said that you're more than your scars in your past. And they went on to say, you know, Satan wants to define you by your scars, but God wants to define you by his. And we, we started off by talking about the different thoughts that we've had, the different issues and difficulties that we've gone through. But, you know, scripture uh, also talks about other people that have gone through different things. Solomon in his pursuit of pleasure reached to the point where he hated his life in Ecclesiastes 2, 17. Mm -hmm. You know, Elijah asked God to take away his life in 1 Kings 19, 4. You know, Jonah asked God that he might die. And the thought of him being in the world was not an option for him, right? He, that it, the world would be better if he was gone. And then even the apostle Paul says that he was under such great pressure far beyond his ability to endure so that he was despairing of even life itself. We see that in 2 Corinthians 1.8. And as you tear down those four individuals, we see that Solomon, he learned to fear God and keep the commandments, Ecclesiastes 12. Elijah was comforted by an angel. He was allowed to rest and he was given a new commission. Jonah was rebuked by God and that was enough for him. Paul, though overwhelmed by the pressure, he learned to look to the Lord. And he said in 2 Corinthians 1, 9, this happened that we might not rely upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And I, and I got a lot of that from uh, got questions. When we bring it back to a gospel centric issue, we, we have to come to the conclusion that we are more than our scars, more than our past. Uh, I think it was Vance Havner who said, sometimes God puts us on our back so that we look up. You think of all the different things that people collect. You know, people collect stamps. They collect uh, celebrity signatures and pictures and baseball cards and Pokemon cards. I saw a video the other day where a YouTube celebrity had purchased a Pokemon card for $5.9 million, one single card. But God is a Do you collector. have that one easy? <laughs> no, you've got a lot of them. I skipped that one. But, but God is a collector of things as well. What does God collect? He collects dust. The thing that we would get rid of when we know that somebody's coming over to our house, we try to get rid of the dust. We see Abraham answered in Genesis 18. It says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. We were made from the dirt. That God is a dirt collector. 
that regardless of what we've kind of done in our past, whether it is self-imposed or somebody else had done that to us, whether it's a series of bad choices that we have done ourselves or whether they were done to us individually. And internally, we cannot find a way out. That the only way out we think would be to leave this planet. The only hope is the gospel. Amen. And Matthew Henry said, you are at the closest moment and point of receiving God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness when you begin to realize you can't do anything right. That your whole life seems like a big blunder. And God says, look to me and be saved. Look to me. It's not come to the end of your rope and tie a knot and hold on. No, it's let go into my hands and allow me to finish your story. And by virtue of the fact that somebody is still alive, God is not done with them. Mm. Because we've been prepared and created for good works to walk in those good works. And that ultimate tragedy and trial inside your life has culminated to a place where now you are useful in the master's hands to accomplish great works because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you're done with your life. I get it. Now allow Christ to finish the story. Allow Christ to finish what you tried to finish in your flesh. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. That's good, Mark. Yeah, the gospel is the hope. And look, friends, for those of you that are, that are listening now that may be struggling with this, we love you. We care about you as a fellow human being, whether you're a Christian or you're not. And we want to urge you to get help. We want to urge you to reach out. And we want to urge you also to examine where you've been in your heart and mind. You know, repentance is a good word. And often people won't use it in this context, but often that will be the very thing that keeps you from doing this thing that's extremely tragic. We don't believe as Christians that suicide is the unforgivable sin. If you're in Christ, uh, you could sin in that way and commit suicide. And it doesn't mean you're not saved. But on the other hand, you do need to examine yourself and ask yourself, do I, do I know the Lord? Like, do I have the hope of Christ? Again, we're not saying that in times of feeling hopeless, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but you do need to examine yourself. You know, Sam Storms pointed out that there were six suicides that were cited in scripture, and they were Abimelech, Samson, Ahithophel, Saul and his armor bearer, and Judas Iscariot. And he said this, he said, it's worth noting that in each of these cases, the suicide is the end to a life that did not at least in the latter stages meet with God's approval. Is there any significance in the fact that the only recorded instances of suicide in the Bible are of those in moral and spiritual rebellion against God? And that's what you need to examine in your heart and ask yourself, why, why am I contemplating destroying this vessel that bears the image of God? Have I taken my eyes off Christ? Have I put my hope in myself and in man and in others? And, and John Piper, I think he put it well. He said, suicide is pursued out of the principle of self-love in the midst of a feeling of utter meaninglessness and hopelessness and numbness of desperation. The soul says it can't get any worse than this. So even if I don't know what I will gain through death, I do know what I will escape. And so suicide is an attempt to escape the intolerable. It is an act of self-love. And so I, I'm saying this out of love for you who are listening. There is no heroism in suicide. There is no glory in suicide. It is self-murder. And so don't do it. There's hope in Christ. There are people that love you and the gospel can transform you and change you and give you the strength you need to overcome it. 
Can I just mention what takes me out of suicide is reaching out to the lost. Amen. Nothing like that lifts me up quickly. If I'm tired or depressed, I go out to the lost. And when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said, happy are you if you know these things and do them. So if you get your eyes off yourself and get them onto others and take the gospel to them, it's going to lift you up out of the slough of despond. Yeah. And, then, and we haven't touched upon it, and I don't know if necessarily we have, even have the time to do so, but there is honorable suicide in one sense, where a soldier jumps on a grenade. Yeah. You know, there's no greater love than this one to lay down his life for his friends, or even accidental suicide, where you're too close uh, to the edge of a cliff, and you're, or maybe you're playing silly or stupid games. But those are, to some degree, suicide, but that's not what we're dealing with here. It's an entirely different issue altogether. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, friends, Ray wrote a booklet because he was encountering people on the streets so often when he'd ask him, have you ever thought of suicide? And it was shocking how many would say yes. And so he wrote a, bu- a booklet called You Are Not Alone. And that's what we changed the title of Exit to as well. And so you can get these and, and have them on hand to give to people that are maybe struggling with it. Ray also wrote a book called The Final Curtain, Fame, Fortune, and Feudal Lives. And, uh, and he deals with suicide in there as well. And so these are actually, oh, two books combined. And on the other side, yeah, is uh, From the Ledge, a conversation with comfort. And so he deals with, with those things. And so uh, make sure to check them out. You can get them at livingwaters.com to give to other people that may be in that place or to help you understand these things better. We hope, friends, as I said in the beginning, that we've been able to somehow give you encouragement and comfort and understanding in this regard. May the Lord touch you if you're struggling with this as you cry out to him. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you here next time on the Living Waters podcast. Winners, winners, winners. That's you, friends. Those of you who I'm about to announce are the winners of this week's podcast giveaway on the Living Waters podcast. We've got Carlos from Lamont, California, Daniel from Jamestown, North Carolina, Ed Washburn from Tennessee, David Norwood from North Carolina, Doug Campobello from South Carolina, Ali from Falls Church, Virginia, Adrian from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Joshua from Excelsior Springs, Missouri, Eva from Bow Island, Canada, and Penelope from Bardwell Park, Australia. Shout out to the Aussies and the Canadians out there. Friends, you can get this too. Those of you who are listening, just share the word and sign up for the Living Waters podcast.